And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. Uh, John chapter 2, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this amazing Gospel, uh, we come this morning to John chapter 2, verse 12. And my goal this morning is to um, try to cover verse uh, 12 through 25. And the title of the message is, The Lord Comes Suddenly to His Temple. The Lord comes suddenly to his temple. And to start off uh, the message this morning, I, I, want, I want you to listen to some words that God speaks to the people of Israel in Malachi chapter 3, uh, in verses 1, 2, and 3, where he says these words, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. In a nutshell, God is saying to Israel, be very careful what you wish for. You seek after the Messiah and delight in the thought of him coming to you one day, and one day he will come suddenly to his temple. And when he comes, he's going to bring the heat, and he's going to purify all that he touches. And the only question for you, God is essentially saying, is will you be able to endure him when he comes? In our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in John 2, we're going to witness at least a preliminary fulfillment of this prophecy of Malachi as Christ comes to his temple and presents himself in what amounts to his first public act, the first public act of his messianic ministry. As we have studied already in John chapter 1, we have seen how John the Baptist has been preaching in the wilderness and calling upon people to prepare the way for the Messiah who is soon to appear. We have seen how Jesus has gathered his first five followers to himself, and we saw last week how Jesus performed a behind-the-scenes miracle at a wedding in Cana. In verse 11, John tells us that this quiet miracle that Jesus performed at this wedding was simply the beginning of signs that Jesus did to manifest his glory, which leads us to expect more on the pages to come. Observe what John says in verse 12. After this, in other words, after the wedding of Cana, After this, he went down to Capernaum. 
he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Capernaum was about 18 miles uh, northeast of Cana, and this is where Jesus goes together with, the text says, his mother and his brothers and his disciples. Uh, The fact, uh, guys, that Jesus is said here to have brothers uh, indicates very clearly that Mary had other sons besides Jesus. The fact that Jesus' mother and brothers are mentioned here in this verse, but not Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is consistent with the common belief that Joseph has already died by this time. But John says that once they arrived in Capernaum, they stayed there a few days. And it's after these few days of reprieve that the time comes for Jesus to then gather himself up with his disciples and travel to Jerusalem and enter his temple as the Messiah, uh, which will represent his first public act as the Messiah. And as we look at this passage this morning, as you'll see on the notes, uh, we're just going to break down our study of this passage into five developments, five developments in the story of Jesus presenting himself in the temple at Passover. And the first of these developments is that Jesus enters the temple. He enters the temple and finds people engaging in business. Observe what the text says in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was an annual event in the spring of the year, and it was designed to commemorate God delivering the Israelites uh, from death and also from bondage in Egypt. And according to the teaching of the law, every male Jew from the age of 12 and up was expected to attend the Passover at Jerusalem. And as part of the Passover celebration, a male lamb, as many of you know, would be killed and then prepared and eaten by the family. Immediately following the Passover was a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, a feast that was so closely associated with the Passover that the term Passover was used to cover both the Passover and this seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed. And you can write down Luke 22, verse 1. Luke 22, verse 1, where Luke explicitly explains this, which all combined to comprise uh, an eight-day period of celebration and commemoration in which Jerusalem would be swarming with pilgrims and presenting sacrifices daily to the Lord. In fact, we learn from Josephus, the historian, that the city's population would swell to as much as 3 million people during the Passover season. And just to give you perspective, uh, Passover this year in 2022 
began right about when we were starting our Good Friday service um, eight or nine days ago, and it ended at sundown last night, okay? Uh, so we are uh, just barely past the point uh, where the events of our passage take place in terms of our own calendar. So Jesus, according to John, comes into the temple on this occasion, and he enters the temple and observe what happens in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. When pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, they typically would not bring their own animals for sacrifice, uh, primarily because they didn't want to bring their animals all that distance, only to have them be inspected and rejected by the priests at the temple because they had some kind of blemish. So to make things convenient for everyone, the pilgrims would just bring money. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, there would be a market available for them in which they could purchase approved animals uh, for sacrifice that had already been approved by the priest. Uh, The religious authorities in Jerusalem uh, also would only accept a certain kind of currency for Jews to pay the temple tax and to purchase animals for sacrifice. So the Jews who are coming from various locations would need to exchange their money for currency that would be accepted in the temple. So there were money changers that were there and ready and waiting to exchange their currency with them for a fee, of course. There's a lot of discussion in the commentaries about the various corruptions that inevitably entered into this industry uh, providing animals for sacrifice and the currency exchange that is here in the temple. And there is little doubt that such corrupt practices were going on even in uh, John chapter 2. In fact, when Jesus cleanses the temple a second time toward the end of his ministry, he's going to call these people thieves, making the temple a den of thieves. And we see that in Mark 11, verse 17. But here's what we need to note. John says nothing about any of such things here. All John says is what we find here in verse 14. Look at the text that Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And you might want to underline the words in the temple, in the temple, because these are the words that tell you the real problem that Jesus has with what he sees going on. It's not the existence of a market for purchasing animals for sacrifice that bothers Jesus here. It's the location of this market that bothers him. The religious authorities could have easily set up a market somewhere near the temple 
But from the language of our text here, we learn that the religious authorities had chosen to locate the, this animal market in the actual temple. Every commentator would agree that this market was set up on this occasion in the court of the Gentiles, which was part of the temple compound. In the temple compound, there was the Holy of Holies, right? Uh, where the high priest would enter once a year. Then there was the holy place where a particular priest would enter twice a day to offer incense uh, to the Lord. Then there was the court of priests around that, surrounded by an outer layer called the court of Israel, where Jewish men could assemble. To the east of that, a little further away, was the court of women, where Jewish women could gather in the temple. And then surrounding all of that was the court of the Gentiles, where God-fearing Gentiles were supposed to be welcome to come and worship the one true God and pray to him. And it turns out it was in this court of the Gentiles that the religious authorities had set up shop for selling animals for sacrifice and to exchange currency for the pilgrims who would descend upon Jerusalem for things like the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They set things up in this way because it made sense to them. It was convenient and it was practical, and so they felt entitled to, to do this. But it's not hard to imagine how locating all of this commerce and inventory of animals in the court of the Gentiles would have dramatically changed the whole atmosphere of this outer court of the temple, right? As one writer says, and I quote, there was the stench and the filth, the bleeding and lowing of animals destined for sacrifice that now filled this place. On top of that, there were crowds of people standing in line and making their uh, purchases along with the sound of people haggling over the price of the animals, all of which served to turn this court of the Gentiles into anything but a place of worship for the Gentiles who would desire to worship in this place. Setting up shop like this in the court of the Gentiles showed how little the Jews valued Gentiles even Gentile worshipers of the true God. It showed how little they cared about their missionary calling to be a light to the nations and to make the temple a place where God-fearing Gentiles could come and pray to the one true God. Speaking just hypothetically here, but to help us understand, imagine what we would do here at Cornerstone if Gordon Bournes were to set up an animal market here in this room on Sunday mornings, how would that impact our worship services? I think we would find that all quite distracting. Many of you would find another church 
or we would just worship in the parking lot like we've done before. But Gordon would never do that to us. But this is exactly what the Jewish authorities were doing to the Gentiles, turning the court of the Gentiles into an animal market, into a place of business. Looking back at verse 14, look at the text. I I think part of John's intent in telling us what Jesus found is to emphasize what Jesus did not find when he comes into this part of the temple. Evidently, Jesus doesn't find Gentiles praying and worshiping God. He doesn't find godly Jews teaching interested Gentiles about the one true God in this court of the Gentiles. Instead, Jesus walks into the court of the Gentiles of this temple, and this is what he sees. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. You get the impression that everywhere Jesus turned as he looked around, this is what he saw. So much so that he saw nothing else going on as he looked around. Well, as you can imagine, Jesus is very unhappy with what he sees, which brings us to the next development in this story of Jesus presenting himself in the temple at Passover. Number two, Jesus drives those doing business out of the temple. Jesus drives those doing business out of the temple. Observe what Jesus does in verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. The scourge of cords is essentially a several-stranded whip that Jesus made with some pieces of rope that he would have found lying around, which there would have been plenty of in the litter lying around the place. And after making this scourge of cords, he started going after these people who were doing business and driving them all out of the temple along with their animals too. Observe what he does in the middle of verse 15. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, either flipping them over with his hands or kicking these tables over. Observe what he does in verse 16. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. The doves would have been in cages, obviously, and were for pilgrims who were too poor to afford an animal for sacrifice. And Jesus here is speaking to the sellers of these doves, and he's saying, get these things out of this place. Take these things away. Now, when we look at the verses that we just looked at, here's what's remarkable. According to verse 15, Jesus successfully drove them all out of the temple. And this is a remarkable thing that should not be lost on us. It's astounding that none of these people tried to stand their ground and stand up to Jesus and resist him. 
and try to stay. It's also remarkable that the Jewish authorities did not intervene and step in and try to stop Jesus from what he's doing. So Jesus successfully drives them all out of the temple, and it leaves us with the question, why did they all flee as he drove them out? Why did no one resist him? Was it because of the scourge of cords that he had in his hand? Is that what intimidated them? Or was it something else? I love how the commentator Leon Morris answers these questions. He says, and I quote, It was not so much the physical force as much as it was the moral power that Jesus employed that emptied the courts. Another writer says, It was surely the blazing anger of the selfless Christ rather than the weapon which he carried, which really cleared the temple courts of its noisy, motley throng. The other explanation is that deep in the conscience of every one of these traders and business people in the temple was an awareness that what they were doing was wrong and that Jesus was morally right to drive them out. Their own conscience in this moment served as a powerful ally to Jesus, which caused them to flee before the very presence of Christ in this moment. And I personally get this on one level. I, uh, I had a fleeing kind of moment uh, when I was a child, when I was 13 years of age, my mom uh, laid down for a nap one summer afternoon. And while she was sleeping, I and my three siblings went into the back room of the house and decided that we would sneak and watch some television, which we knew that our parents did not allow us to do So we knew that it was disobedient. So I'm not saying it's wrong to watch television, but my parents told us we were not allowed to do that, but we did it anyway. But we had it all figured out uh, so that we would not get caught. We had our youngest uh, brother in a position where he would be in the room and he could see the TV screen, but also see if our mom came walking through the house toward the room where we were assembled, and it was his job. He had one job, and that was, <laughs> I'm still a little bitter about how this turned out. He was supposed to warn us in time for us to turn the TV off and put on our innocent faces, you know, if our mom were to wake up and to come into the room. Unfortunately, my brother became so riveted by the TV show that we were watching that he did not see my mom coming until it was too late. And I remember hearing him make some kind of startled noise, and I turned to my right, and I saw my brother looking up at my mom, who was already practically at the door. And without even thinking, I jumped from the couch, I opened the back door of the house, 
and I took off running in full sprint from the house. And I literally ran for a full residential block uh, before I stopped. And my mom didn't even have a whip in her hand. But she had a powerful ally in my conscience. And I knew what I was doing was disobedience to her. So I fled from what I was doing as fast as I could. By the way, as an aside, you want to know the TV show we were watching? Leave it to Beaver. (laughs) Anywho, uh, there's something of this dynamic of conscience working here in John 2, I think. In the moment, these merchants knew in their conscience that what they were doing was wrong such that they were simply unable to resist the spiritual authority that Christ is exuding as he stands before them and sends them away from the temple. As Malachi prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, this is indeed the Lord coming suddenly to his temple. And what we have here is at least a few moments where everybody becomes seized with a fit of actual sanity. And they instinctively gave way to the divine authority of the Lord Jesus. And I am sure that as they looked upon his fiery countenance in this moment, they knew that this was no ordinary man trying to stir up trouble They knew instinctively that he had a divine authority about him that left them unable to do anything but melt before him and run. Part of their observation of his authority came from what they heard him say. At the end of verse 16, his message to the whole lot of them was, Stop making my father's house a place of business. Again, Jesus is not faulting them for engaging in business. He is simply faulting them for turning the temple into a place of business. And notice how he refers to the temple. He doesn't refer to this as your house or even as our father's house, but as my father's house. In using such language, Jesus is distinguishing himself from all others, and he's claiming a unique relationship to his father that no one else shared in. And in calling this my father's house, Jesus is essentially saying, this is my house too. And he rebukes these people for making his and his father's house a place of business You know, in our society today, so many people think that just being religious is good enough. But all these people that Jesus is dealing with here were religious people who were doing the religious thing that they thought was the most sensible to them. And Jesus is making wreckage of what they were doing and giving them orders to get their stuff and to get out. 
He's acting like he has authority over the place. He's acting like he is the boss of these people. And he's acting like he has the authority to direct these people and how to do their religion. And we're going to see in a few moments how the religious rulers respond to what Jesus is doing here. But John first wants us to know how Jesus' own disciples responded, which brings us to the third development in the story of Jesus presenting himself in the temple at Passover. Number three, Jesus' disciples realize that he, Jesus, is fulfilling prophecy as the greater David. Jesus' disciples realize that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as the greater David. Observe what John says in verse 17. His disciples remembered, as they're standing there, they remembered that it was written, and now here's what's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Old Testament passage where these words are written is Psalm 69, verse 9, which is actually found in a discouraging context. In fact, let me read to you portions of Psalm 69, verses 4 through 9, so that you can get a sense of this. Starting in verse 4, the psalmist David says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. Verse 7 of Psalm 69, Because for your sake, speaking to God, I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Now verse 9. For or because zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So this is... David's speaking in Psalm 69, and he's lamenting the fact that people hated him and wished to destroy him. And it seems to have something to do with his zeal for God's house. And as for his zeal, the psalmist says, zeal for your house will consume me. This statement could be taken to mean that a holy zeal will bubble up from within him and take control of him, or the psalmist could be saying, it is my zeal for your house that will end up being the death of me because of what it will cause my enemies to do to me. And commentators say there's an element of both meanings in this text, leaving Jesus' disciples with a sinking feeling in their guts. As the commentator William Hendrickson says, these disciples of Jesus who are witnessing him cleansing the temple are now, and I quote, filled with fear that Jesus may suffer what David had to endure in his day. Namely, that this zeal that Jesus is displaying will in some way result in his being consumed and having to suffer reproach. 
So all in all, these disciples would be both encouraged and deeply sobered by what they're witnessing. They would realize that Jesus is the greater David, who has a holy zeal for God's house. But they would also realize that his zeal is so great that it is inevitably going to arouse the opposition of God's enemies to rise up against him and consume him. And little did these disciples realize how true their concerns would turn out to be. In fact, the truth is that Jesus right here at the very beginning of his ministry is picking a fight. He's picking a fight with the religious authorities, a fight that will culminate in his own crucifixion. So that's how Jesus' disciples responded to what they are witnessing. As for how the religious leaders responded, we will see that they respond by asking Jesus to produce a sign that validates his right to do what he has done, which brings us to the next development in this story of Jesus presenting himself in the temple at Passover. Number four, Jesus points to his future resurrection as proof of his authority to act as he has. Jesus points to his future resurrection as proof of his authority to act as he has acted here. Observe how the rulers of the Jews responded in verse 18. Then, or the Jews, then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? We see the expression, the Jews, about 70 times in John's gospel, and in almost all of them, this title speaks of the Jewish leaders the big dogs of Jerusalem. These are the men who ruled over the Jews and who controlled what happened in the temple. They obviously had no problem with the sellers of animals and money changers being stationed in the court of the Gentiles. So what Jesus has just done is a direct assault on the religious status quo that these leaders of the Jewish people have established under their rule. And notice that they don't even want to converse with Jesus about the situation that Jesus was correcting. Their only question to Jesus was, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They should have simply repented of their sin and thanked Jesus for intervening and doing what he has done, and bowed before him and worshiped him in his own house. Instead, they're basically saying, who do you think you are doing what you have done? What right do you have to be the boss of us and to treat this place like it is your house? What sign do you show us to prove that you have the right to act in this way? And let's not forget, it would be an awesome thing to be publicly challenged by men as powerful as these men are, but Jesus doesn't flinch at all. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's my answer to your question. 
You're asked for a sign. This is the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. I should say, guys, that if there was one single statement that Jesus made in the entirety of his public ministry that ended up having the most far-reaching negative consequences, it was this one. If he had a PR agent and ran this statement through that agent, it would not have survived. That agent would have said, do not say this. It will be twisted and misunderstood. The consequences of this statement by Jesus were far-reaching, and Jesus had to know this. He knew this even when he said it. This statement will end up being twisted and used against Jesus at his trial in the hours before his crucifixion. We see this in Matthew 26, verses 60 and 61. This statement will be twisted and thrown in his face even while he's hanging on the cross. We see this in Matthew 27, 40. This statement will even be held against Stephen in Acts chapter 6 in verse 14 and serve as part of the reason for his being stoned. But Jesus knows what he is doing when he says what he says here. He knows that he is giving his enemies ammunition that they can use to bring about his eventual death. In fact, in this statement, Jesus literally is predicting the fact that they will kill him. And then predicting something that he will do in response. But for now, observe how the Jewish leadership responds to Jesus' statement in verse 20. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? So it's clear that the Jewish religious leaders think Jesus is talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem, which leaves them aghast at what he is saying. Keep in mind that Solomon's temple got destroyed by the Babylonians. Then under Ezra, the temple in Jerusalem got rebuilt. And then around 19 B.C., Herod the Great started what turned out to be an 83-year-long rebuilding project where the temple got rebuilt one stage at a time, a project that technically was not finished until A.D. 63, which means that this reference here to 46 years here in verse 20, provides us with a fascinating historical clue as to when this conversation took place. We learn from the historian Josephus that Herod began reconstruction on the temple in the 18th year of his reign, which would have been around 19 BC. So the 46 years that these religious rulers are mentioning here indicates that this present conversation is taking place in A.D. 27 or 28. And standing in this day, around A.D. 27 or 28, these religious leaders 
are saying to Jesus, it has taken 46 years just to get to this point of rebuilding this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? No way. At this point, the Apostle John wants us to know that these religious leaders completely missed the point of Jesus' words. Listen to what John the Apostle says to us in verse 21. He says, but he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his what? Of his body. Essentially, Jesus is saying to these men, if they had the ears to hear, he's saying to them, if the temple is all about being the place where men meet with God and worship him and enjoy his presence, then there is something greater than the temple who stands before you right now, and that is me. Destroy this temple of my body, and in three days I will raise it up again. And my resurrection from the dead will be the ultimate sign that I have the right to come into this house and make wreckage of what you guys are doing and to rearrange things to my liking. That's what he's saying. As for the disciples standing here listening to this exchange, John wants us to know that they didn't understand Jesus either. But they did get it later. In verse 22, John says, When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. If you want to know the Old Testament scriptures that the disciples likely remembered and believed after Christ's resurrection, you can write down Psalm 16, verse 10, a messianic psalm in which the psalmist speaks to God and says, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 10, is another Old Testament scripture foretelling Christ's resurrection, where Isaiah, the prophet, foretells that the Messiah will experience a prolonging of days on the other side of dying as a guilt offering for sins. And here in our passage today, the Apostle John is telling us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered Jesus making this statement here in John 2. And in the process, they believed two things. The Old Testament scriptures, like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16 and others, and the word that Jesus had spoken here in John 2. Well, John doesn't tell us any further about Jesus' exchange with these religious leaders, which seems to indicate that evidently they left him alone for the time being while they plotted privately about what to do with Jesus. And it was while Jesus is ministering freely in the hours and the days that follow this cleansing of the temple that he begins doing public miracles in Jerusalem, and he's doing public miracles for the very first time, you almost get the impression that now that Jesus has cleared out the court of the Gentiles, 
of all the business that was going on, that he's now using the space as at least one of his venues for performing public miracles, which sets in motion the result that John describes in verses 23 through 25. And this brings us to the fifth and the final development in the story of Jesus presenting himself in the temple at Passover. Number five, Jesus, this is really strange, but we'll unpack it. Jesus refuses to entrust himself even to those who believed in his name. Jesus refuses to entrust himself even to those who believed in his name. Observe what John says in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, in other words, the feast of unleavened bread that followed the Passover, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. In this case, we're not told what particular signs Jesus was performing, but everything points to the fact that these were miracles of healing, uh, giving sight to the blind and making the lame able to walk again and giving hearing to the deaf and so on. And John says that these were not just miracles, but they were signs. You might want to underline that word signs. That's a key word in the gospel of John. Signs which pointed to the truth about Jesus, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. And we know that these miracles were happening in full view of many people because the text says in verse 23 that many believed in his name, observing the signs that he was doing. Notice that they're not believing in Jesus' name because of his teaching, but because of his signs, which they are observing him do. To their credit, they take these signs rightly to point to the fact that Jesus must be the Messiah that they have been waiting for. And as a result, they're believing in his name, which is better than what the religious leaders were doing, right? However, all is not yet as it ought to be even here. One commentator suggests that we can translate verse 23 in this way. Many believed in his name, so long as they were observing his signs, which he was doing. Let me read that again. Many believed in his name so long as they were observing his signs, which he was doing. Their faith in Jesus evidently is so shallow and immature at this point, and even new at this point, that it seems to last only as long as Jesus keeps doing signs. Once those signs stop, their faith flags and wanes because it seems that their faith was dependent upon these signs. Evidently, though, Jesus is willing to do these signs because they do serve to awaken faith in these people with the intent that their shallow faith would eventually mature into something deeper and truer. But what does Jesus do with these people who are believing in him at this very early immature stage of their faith as they see him performing signs? Observe what the text says in verses 24 and 25. 
But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What this means is that Jesus is not giving into and giving himself over to the shallow whims of the immature faith of the crowd at this point. He knows that if he went along with even those who right now are believing in his name and gave himself over to their wishes, that they would all make him a king right away, a king of their own liking who would throw off the tyranny of Rome as if Rome was their number one problem. What we learn about Jesus here is that Jesus is not so caught up in his own fame that he will cater to the fancies of even those who believe in his name when their faith is still so immature and uninformed and loaded with wrong notions. As for why Jesus responds this way, even to those believing in his name at this point, John teaches us three things about Jesus. He teaches us that Jesus knew all men. Second, John tells us that Jesus did not need anyone to testify to him concerning man. And third, he says, for he himself knew what was in man. These are three profound truths about Jesus, the Jesus with whom we all have to deal If anyone knows the human condition, it's Jesus. If anyone can see right into the heart of every human person, it's Jesus. If you came to Jesus today, you would not need to even open your mouth and tell him anything about yourself because he already knows everything about you. You would not need to provide Jesus with references from people who know you well, because he already knows you better than those references know you. And he knows what's in you, the good and the bad and the ugly. He knows you even better than you know yourself. And even when you and I, those of us that know the Lord, even when we came to Jesus for salvation and we believed in him, Jesus in that moment saw right into our hearts in those early moments of faith. He saw the true faith that was in us, placed in us as a gift from God. But Jesus also saw the wrong-headed notions and immature notions that we all brought into our faith in him. So what John says here about Jesus not entrusting himself over to these believers in his name is also even true for true converts, at least on some level. And honestly, I'm glad it's true. I'm glad that Jesus doesn't entrust himself over to me to the point that he lets me make him whatever I want him to be. I'm glad Jesus doesn't come to anyone who believes in him 
and says, I will be anything to you that you would like for me to be. And I will do anything, anything at all that you would like for me to do. I'm glad Jesus did not entrust himself over to Peter when Peter was telling him in Matthew 18, don't you dare go to the cross. You don't need to do that. Jesus didn't let himself be shaped by Peter's wrong notions and be carried along by his wrong-headed ideas. No, Jesus is the sovereign, and we are not. He is the Christ, and we are not. He is who he is, not who we might wish him to be in any given moment. If Jesus handed himself over to us and allowed us to make him whatever we wanted him to be, then that would mean that we control him rather than the other way around. It would mean that we are the real sovereigns and that Jesus is merely the puppet on a string who does our bidding. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. Here's the way it works for those who believe in Jesus' name. Jesus calls the shots. He's the sovereign. And it's our job to entrust ourselves over to him and to adapt ourselves to the truth of who he is. Some people nowadays have the idea that God is whoever you want him to be. And they would have that idea about Christ. We learn in this passage that that is not the case. As we conclude our study of this passage this morning, I just want you to carefully consider what we see in this passage today in coming into the temple and driving out all of those who were doing business there, Jesus is making wreckage of what these religious people were doing. In the process, he's acting like their religious authority who has the right to tell them what to do regarding how to practice their religion. And this is an amazing display of audacity on Jesus' part. Who does he think he is? What gives him the right to come crashing against their religious practices in this way. That's exactly what they ask him, saying essentially in verse 18, what sign do you give us that shows that you have the right to come barging against what we're doing, barging in on our business and telling us how to practice religion in this temple and as we have seen, Jesus basically says, here's the sign. Destroy my body, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And by my resurrection from the dead, you will know that I have the authority to come into this place and clean house and make wreckage of what you are doing and to be the boss of you and to tell you how to practice true religion. This is a staggering claim by Jesus with massive personal consequences and ramifications for every one of us in this room, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian. In fact, a few years ago, I was listening to a lecture by Timothy Keller in which he made uh, this statement. Listen to what he says, quote, the resurrection of Christ makes Christianity 
the most irritating religion in existence, unquote. Why? Because, he says, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Christ's teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. And he's right. The resurrection of Christ means that you don't have the right to do whatever you want to do with your life. The resurrection of Christ means that you don't have the right to just do whatever you want with the temple of your own body. But you must do with your life and with your body what he wants you to do with it. His resurrection means that we can't even just do church however we like here at Cornerstone. But we must seek to do church in a way that is pleasing to him and is governed by him. His resurrection means that you can't just be religious and spiritual and moral in whatever way you like, but that you must let him call the shots and be the Lord of your religion and the Lord of your morality. This is the Jesus that John is presenting to us in his gospel, a Jesus whom John wants us to believe in so that we might have life in his name. A Jesus who was willing to die on the cross for our sins and then be raised from the dead so that we might now have life in his name and to receive the forgiveness of our sins. If you have never done so, I, I urge you this morning to come to Jesus and to believe in him and to submit to his loving authority over your own life. I want you to feel loved even by what you see in this text today, as heavy as it is. Think about the lengths that Jesus went to to clear the way for you to come to God. In fact, most of, the, most of us in this room, I would presume, are Gentiles. So we should actually read this passage and appreciate how Jesus fights for Gentiles like us to be able to come to the temple and worship God unhindered and without distraction. In part, Jesus is fighting for the Gentiles to be able to come to God and worship him and pray to him. And in this passage, he's cleansing the temple, setting in motion the ultimate thing that Jesus did to pave the way for us to worship God. And that is that Jesus was so zealous that we might be able to come to God and worship him, that he laid down his life on the cross and he shed his blood so that through the torn flesh of Jesus, we can enter into the holy place and worship God and enjoy a relationship with him. That's a savior worth believing in. A Savior who was willing to fight for us all the way to his last breath and who was then raised to execute what he fought for, for our eternal salvation. Let's pray together and give thanks to our Lord.
Lord Jesus, you are a wonderful Savior. Uh, You are a force to be reckoned with, that is for sure. I know that everyone in John's day, they all were looking forward to the Messiah coming, and they, but they all had their own ideas of what the Messiah would be like when he came. And so many of those ideas were wrong. And Jesus, in your wisdom, you just had to deal with all of that and show that you truly are the Messiah, and yet not give yourself over to all the wrong-headed notions that people brought to the table even when they did believe in you. But we're so thankful to see your wisdom on display. Last week, how you did a miracle at a wedding in a behind-the-scenes way that was so touching and so tender and thoughtful. And then to see this side of you in the second half of this very same chapter as you come into the temple And you make wreckage of what people were doing that was not consistent with your will. And in the process, you you help us to understand you. Help me, help all of us in this room to believe in you as we ought to believe. And then rather than trying to bend you to our will and to get you to adapt to what we think is best, that we would orbit you and bend to your will and adapt to you and entrust ourselves over to you. That we don't just take you and apply you to our lives, but that we apply our lives to you. We get caught up in you and the story of what you have done and are doing in the world This is the kind of Messiah you are, and this is what's entailed in having a relationship with you. And we're so thankful for how you make that clear to us this morning. Help us to walk in the good of the wisdom you've revealed, Lord, in the days of this coming week. And help us to represent you, Lord Jesus, to all those that we come in contact with and to point them to you. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.